Welcome to the Human Data Era, special edition podcast series produced by the Scientists Creative Services team. This series is brought to you by Amgen, a pioneer in the science of using living cells to make biologic medicines. They helped invent the processes and tools that built the global biotech industry and have since reached millions of patients suffering from serious illnesses around the world with their medicines. By studying human genetics, scientists discovered mechanisms that, when defective, cause disease. While this type of data is powerful, additional information can provide more insight on the human condition. Researchers and clinicians can now go beyond genetics, combining proteomics, metabolomics, transcriptomics, and environmental factors into a broad category of human data. In the series, Ray Deshays, Senior Vice President of Global Research at Amgen, explores the potential of human data and the important transition scientists and clinicians are making to incorporate this wealth of information into drug research and development. With a whole host of patient data at our fingertips, drug developers are becoming more thoughtful and strategic about using human data to develop medicines and design clinical trials to test them. In this episode, I talked to Dr. Rob Lenz, Senior Vice President of Global Development at Amgen. We review the full scope of human data going beyond the genome to explore the challenges of using human data as well as the opportunities of applying human data to drug research and clinical trials. Hey Rob, it's fabulous to have you with me here today. When I first came to Amgen, you were running the neurology part of Amgen, the clinical development. And I'd be curious to know, how did your experiences as a neurologist treating patients inform how you think about running global clinical development at Amgen? And in particular, how you think about the potential for using human data to drive the development of our medicines? I got involved with designing and conducting a clinical trial in my residency at UCLA, and I got hooked. I loved just how rapidly I could get actionable answers from clinical research and then bring that almost immediately to my patients. That love of clinical research is still very much alive in me today. Soon after joining the pharmaceutical industry, I was designing my first phase two industry trials, I realized that many aspects of the traditional trial design simply didn't make sense to me. When I went out and asked people why they did the things the way that they did, I often got pretty unsatisfactory responses. So I reached out and started working with some really brilliant statisticians outside the company who are incorporating adaptive designs in oncology trials. It's that constant motivation. How do we continually improve how we design and conduct our trials? That definitely remains with me today. At Amgen, my group makes the molecules, and then we hand the molecules over to you so that your team can take them into humans. In our industry, from the point when a clinical candidate is nominated to when it achieves FDA approval and reaches the market, It's roughly only 1 in 10 molecules that successfully negotiate that long journey. Why do you think so few of the molecules make it through? Historically, there has been an entire reliance on the discovery research parts of organizations to simply make better molecules. Just get better at targeting the target, 
There's been huge strides in our industry, but a fair number of drugs fail, not because it's the wrong target, but because they're not studied in the right way. A major focus for us in the clinical trial part is to think about what are the things that we can do to increase the probability of success and reduce those failures. We're going to be talking today about using human data, human genetics, proteomics, transcriptomics, single cell sequencing, electronic health records, and so forth. In the research organization, we use human data in a very particular way, which is to identify targets that might be particularly effective to intervene with. My understanding from talking to you is that it's not just a tool for use in research, but it's a tool you could also apply in clinical development. Can you talk a little bit about that? There's utility for all of the different types of human data. I categorize these into two broad categories. One would include traditional phenotypic data. That's things like a patient's symptoms, medical history. Do they have depression? Do they have a history of heart attack? Do they have a rash? And that's captured through a number of sources like insurance claims data, electronic health records, and increasingly digital data from things like wearables, right, smartwatches, et cetera. And then the other broad category of human data is molecular data. That includes things like blood-based or tissue-based lab data, imaging, and germline and tumor genomic data, as well as transcriptomic and even proteomic data. We're in a time of unprecedented access to this data. And we're in the midst of a transformation in utilizing those data to think really differently about how do we generate the clinical data that we need to understand how our medicines work and ultimately to support their approval and the use of those medicines. The traditional drug development model, since I've been in industry, has been basically study a drug in as broad a patient population as possible realizing that any medicine is very unlikely to work equally as well across all patients. But the problem is, historically, we really didn't have the tools or the ability to define populations of patients who are more likely to develop a disease or more likely to progress more quickly, or most importantly, to predict who would respond best to our medicines. When I was seeing Patients, what patients wanted to know is what's the benefit that they specifically will experience on this medicine. And all that I can tell them is what's the average effect that was observed in a broad population from the clinical trials. And it was incredibly unsatisfying to the patient and also incredibly unsatisfying to me. But I say now, for the first time, we have this unprecedented access to patient level data, both phenotypic and molecular data to better understand the disease and the potential treatment responses at an individual patient level. What's the level of variance that you would typically see in a clinical trial? And how much room is there for improvement? In an ideal world, we'd have medicines that either cure all patients with the disease or at least result in meaningful clinical benefit in all patients with that disease. But unfortunately, that simply isn't the case And there's a wide range of responses that patients get in terms of efficacy and also safety. When you include such a broad patient population in a clinical trial, the treatment effect at the end is averaged over the broad patient population. 
And this often results in the drug having relatively modest benefits. When you combine a rather modest treatment effect with a lot of variability, this means you need to run really large and really expensive trials to understand what the actual treatment effect is. That large variability is almost certainly driven in large part by the underlying differences in a patient's biology. So the ultimate goal is to use these various data sources as a way to get better insights into those biological differences and then use them to identify patients who are likely to respond the best or maybe not develop side effects to a medicine. Variability can have different bases. It could be entirely due to their genetics. It can be entirely due to their environmental exposure. It could be a combination of the two. It could be the unique interplay of a genotype with an unusual environmental exposure. Are there different types of human data that can access those different causal bases? Yeah, absolutely. I'll pivot a little bit to atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease because that's where a fair amount of, of, of data has been done. There are in the cardiovascular space, very large clinical data sets. And those allow us to establish which clinical factors are the most predictive of a patient's experiencing a first MI or who are at risk of having, highest risk of having a second MI. Clinical risk factors like age, high blood pressure, cholesterol, smoking, etc. Those are all, of course, associated with increased risk. We know that through these large epidemiologic studies. But that's qualitative. You know that patients are likely to have a higher risk if they have one or more risk factors. But it doesn't provide the doctor or the patient or the clinical trialist with a quantitative assessment of what that risk is. So now we're combining many of these risk factors together in a weighted way to create what's called a, a risk score. That is better in predicting who is at higher risk versus lower risk. And it provides a quantitative measure of an individual's risk, say, for having an MI in the next 10 years. Clinicians are already using this in the real world to change how aggressively they treat a patient or starting to employ this in clinical trials to enrich the trial for those who are more likely to have a second event during the course of the trial. Now, the reality is the clinical measures are okay, but they're not great at defining that risk. We can actually use a person's genetic makeup to further understand what the risk is. Each of us contains a number of variations in our genes. Those are called single nucleotide polymorphisms or SNPs. Some of those variations confer additional risk for a particular disease or potentially protection from a disease. Any single SNP may confer relatively small risk, but there can be dozens, even hundreds of these SNPs that when we add them together, they can confer quite significant risk or protection in an individual. We can use these to generate what's called a polygenic risk score. A similar risk score can also be created by measuring levels of thousands of protein in the blood. These polygenic risk scores and the proteomic risk scores can do a much better job when used instead of just the clinical risk scores to predict who's at the highest risk of getting a disease or progressing after being diagnosed with the disease. So can you talk now a little bit about the differential utility in terms of predictive value 
of a polygenic risk score that uses a patient's genome sequence to predict their disease risk versus, say, a polyprotein risk score that evaluates risk by measuring the levels of proteins in their blood. I like to look at them as being complementary. A critical piece of information that we need to understand is to what extent things like enriching for a particular genotype or proteotype brings additional disease risk above and beyond that inferred from more traditional clinical risks. We need to start with the clinical risk factors because those are extremely well established from epidemiologic studies. They're already incorporated as part of standard of care and they're usually cheap to do. It may be that genomic or proteomic data are more beneficial in certain instances. We can hypothesize. Genomic data might be most useful when understanding something like the lifetime risk of developing a disease or for use in a primary prevention trial when the disease hasn't manifested any clinical symptoms. One can imagine in that scenario using a clinical risk score simply wouldn't be feasible. Whereas somebody who already has a disease, the polygenic risk score may become less important. Proteins are influenced not only by the genetic background of an individual, but they can also reflect adverse changes due to lifestyle, alterations, the environment, therapeutics that the patients are on. Another consideration as to which of these risk predictions is better may depend on the disease of interest. Certain diseases don't have as strong a genetic underpinning as others. The clinical and proteomic risk scores would be more helpful. One interesting example, specifically in the atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, is that polygenic risk scores have been demonstrated to be better predictors than the clinical risk scores at not only who's at risk of having a first MI or stroke, but they actually outperform the clinical measures in patients who have already established cardiovascular disease. They've already had a stroke or an MI at predicting who's going to go on to have a second. There might be a natural tendency to think somebody who's at greatest risk may be the most likely to benefit from my therapy that I'm developing. But as people become later stage in their cancer, they become sicker and sicker, and they actually have a tendency to respond less and less to an intervention. How do you think about that from the point of view of using these multiomic approaches to identify patients for your clinical trials? Let's say we have a targeted therapy for a particular somatic mutation that happens in a, in a tumor. And that mutation early on in the cancer is a critical driver mutation for tumor growth. We end up enriching for patients who are more likely to progress quickly. It may be that other mutations that are driving metastases of the primary tumor become much more important. In that case, we've potentially enriched for a high-risk population for progressing, but it's also a population who is less likely to derive benefit. So we need to enrich for patients who are not only at greater risk, but in whom the biological pathway that we're interdicting remains relevant in that population. Okay, an important point is that there can be a distinction between what triggers the initiation of an irreversible disease process 
And then the events that are downstream that lead to progression of that disease. And depending on the disease, either a polygenic risk score derived from genome sequence or a polyprotein risk score that is derived from proteomics might be more informative. How do you think we can apply these concepts to a challenging disease like Alzheimer's, for which there are no disease-modifying therapies? Absolutely. It's a nice example that underscores the importance of being thoughtful around which of these various measures you use to enrich for, either the clinical or the proteomic or the genomic. On Alzheimer's, it's, it's often the case, depending on the underlying pathway, that you want to intervene early on in the disease process. But you also want to simultaneously enrich for patients who will progress quickly so you don't have to run a 10 or 15-year trial. You could use a polygenic risk score to identify those patients who are still asymptomatic, but they're at high risk of converting in a relatively short period of time to symptomatic Alzheimer's. Maybe that the plasma proteomic signature may not be that helpful in a disease that hasn't manifested significant clinical symptomatology and is essentially brain-restricted disease. And the clinical scores really wouldn't be a benefit because those would only change once the disease is already too far progressed for your therapeutic to work. Both of us really buy into this idea that human data has already led to major improvements and will lead to more in the future. If you and I believe in this and, and we run research and development at Amgen and many other people smarter than us believe in this, What's holding us back from doing this right now at scale, transforming the whole medical system overnight? It is still relatively early days, and we have a lot to learn. So some of the examples that we discussed for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, there appears to be very promising evidence that proteomic and polygenic risk scores can outperform clinical scores and be additive. That's simply just not the case for a large number of other diseases. Without large, prospective, genotyped, proteotyped, phenotype data sets in particular disease areas, we simply can't generate these polygenic and proteomic risk scores. That'll take time. That'll take money. This will not be equally as difficult for every disease. So for cardiovascular disease, things like claims databases do a really good job of capturing something that's pretty straightforward. Did the patient have a stroke or a myocardial infarction? But inflammatory diseases, lupus, others, where we're interested in what's the severity of the symptoms. Claims databases don't capture those data. So then we need to turn to things like electronic health records. And those are made up of what we call unstructured data. And that's much more difficult to work with. I'm encouraged by the advances in natural language processing that can extract meaningful data from those unstructured data sets. And the molecular characterization, we're finally at a point where we can rapidly extract those data from these electronic health records. Another limitation is that there are important cost considerations. The cost of genotyping have come down to a level that, you know, we can now realistically incorporate those into clinical trials and potentially into the clinical ecosystem, depending on the disease. But broad proteomic testing is still quite expensive, even for a clinical trial, and would be simply prohibitive at this point to require that for every single patient who is being considered to receive a medicine. 
There are some other practical considerations about deploying genotyping and proteotyping at large scale in patients in the real world. This would require pretty significant changes to have the widespread population genotyping and proteotyping. If we look by analogy in oncology, even when there are clear diagnostic tests available for somatic mutations and known driver mutations, and when we have targeted therapies available for those you know, mutated proteins, a large percentage of patients still don't get that test in the healthcare system today and thus can't even get the opportunity to receive the targeted therapy. This is where patients literally may die within a very short amount of time without the appropriate medicine. So establishing this broad application for chronic diseases you know, that may manifest over the course of a decade or more will be challenging. About electronic health records, you need natural language processing to extract things from them. And it reminded me of this effort, the research community, to take abstracts of scientific papers and reduce them into an electronic language where you could extract information more readily. Do you think that's feasible to do in the case of EHRs? Like, can EHRs be reworked to make them more digital friendly? Now, changing the behavior of millions of clinicians is no small feat. We have vast amounts of data today that sit in the electronic health records. If we could in- introduce this organized way of capturing data in health records, then we would only be able to use what we capture prospectively. There are major efforts ongoing by all the global regulatory authorities around the concept of data standards. So we, we standardize our data in our clinical trials such that everyone around the world is collecting data the same way. This has happened through a major set of initiatives over the past one and a half decades or so. The same is happening with real world data. But I still think for the vast majority of diseases, where we need much more nuanced clinical data, that resides within the electronic health records. We're going to continue to rely more heavily on natural language processing to extract it. One of the main challenges isn't pulling the the term of interest out. It's understanding the temporal relation, right? So if I say heart attack or MI, That gives you part of the information. But am I talking about, did the patient have an MI today? Did the patient have an MI 27 years ago? Did the patient's brother have an MI? It's the context around the term that has been so challenging. But again, we're finally getting to a point with advances in NLP that we can incorporate that context and the temporality to, to help us. When do you think it'll be the case when when I go to my general practitioner, I'll go to the same doctor I go to all the time, and the first thing he or she is going to do is pull up a screen on their laptop that shows a graphic that depicts my lifetime risk of, of various diseases based on my genotype and on my proteome and how much it has changed since the last time I visited the office. When do you think we're going to actually see actionable changes in how each of us as private citizens experiences our medical care? The adoption of these approaches in the healthcare ecosystem will be somewhat erratic in the near term. They'll be probably more significant in subspecialties like 
cardiology where the underlying data are becoming so compelling. What we will see perhaps before the broader adoption in the clinical ecosystem is what we're doing in the clinical trial space. If you think about how the cost has come down precipitously, it seems reasonable to assume that in the relatively near future, adoption of genomic sequencing for patients who participate in trials is probably not that far away. Assessing proteomics as part of routine clinical trials is certainly further away. Unparalleled, but perhaps lagging what happens in the clinical trial space will be the utilization of genomic in combination with the clinical risk scores in helping clinicians have more informed discussions with individual patients about what their risk is of developing a disease or their disease worsening, but what they might expect from a medicine. That to me is really the holy grail in clinical trials and also in the healthcare ecosystem. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining me today. You've sketched out in a very compelling way the opportunity, but also the practical challenges that face us as we try to bring this omic data into clinical practice and change how we do things. I'm optimistic for the future, and I'm really glad you were able to join me today and talk about where this is headed in the coming years. It's been great speaking with you, Ray. Thank you for listening to the Human Data Era, and thanks again to Rob Lenz, Senior Vice President of Global Development at Amgen. To dive further into this topic, please join Amgen scientists at the Human Data Q&A webinar discussion on November 16, 2022. Register for the event at the link provided in the episode notes. Biobanks house precious human data in the form of samples or information from electronic health records. In the next episode of the Human Data Era, we'll talk to Nancy Cox, professor and director of the Vanderbilt Genetics Institute, about Vanderbilt's DNA biobank, BioView, and her work linking genes and disease. To keep up to date with this podcast, follow The Scientist on Facebook and Twitter, and subscribe to The Scientist Lab Talk wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains forward-looking statements that are based on the current expectations and beliefs of Amgen. All statements other than statements of historical fact are statements that could be deemed forward-looking statements including any statements around the potential science and innovation of genetics and drug discovery. Forward-looking statements involve significant risks and uncertainties, including those described in the Securities and Exchange Commission reports filed by Amgen, including our most recent annual report on Form 10-K and any subsequent periodic reports on Form 10-Q and current reports on Form 8-K. Unless otherwise noted, Amgen is providing this information as of the date of this podcast and does not undertake any obligation to update any forward-looking statements contained in this podcast as a result of new information, future events, or otherwise. No forward-looking statement can be guaranteed, and actual results may differ materially from those we project.